yes, this is personal, Matt, because I, I, even now I've known the Lord for 40 years, more than 40 years, but even now to remind myself of the fact that if this universe really was just a giant material accident controlled entirely by the laws of physics and chemistry and, and nothing but particles interacting with one another according to strict physical laws and bouncing around, if that were true, then right and wrong could be nothing more than words we use to describe what we don't like. Words you and I use, and chimps don't use them, they don't care. You know, bugs, cockroaches don't care about right and wrong. Is this words we use? Well, hello and welcome to another Garden Fresh episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm like Matt that. Swaim. He's Ken Hensley, and we're with the Coming Home Network. Please do visit us at chnetwork.org. We're a group of people from all walks of life who, uh, through various circumstances, found our way to the Catholic Church. Ken was a Baptist pastor. I was an evangelical kid in a lot of different uh, worlds within that, and uh, we're glad that you're here. So, uh if you want to go a level deeper, by the way, click on over to the online community, which is community.chnetwork.org, and come pay us a visit there. Ken, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm Good happy. To- I, I just flew back from Houston last night where I was um, leading a Coming Home Network retreat. Had a great week. Happy to be back. Good stuff. And uh, we're continuing our series on atheism and agnosticism, um, basically talking to people who doubt or deny the existence of God, just to kind of tie it back to the stakes um, of this topic for you and I, at least for myself, uh, Ken, mm-hmm. I never went full agnostic or atheist, but I had some significant doubts. And a lot of them had to do with uh, when I mm-hmm. had my foundation shaken on the topics that we've covered in other series, which are, you know, Sola Scriptura or the question of authority. Right. And once those foundations started to shake, I was in this world where I was like, oh no, well, if this has shaken, then has even the the notion that there is a god i mean can it is can that even be shaken as a matter of fact a lot of my friends who had mm-hmm. their their foundations shaken especially from the christian music world uh, on sola scriptura or authority are now um, self-professed mm-hmm. agnostics so this mm-hmm. topic is very important to me because i think it helps tie back um you know to first of all an issue that i dealt with uh when i had those foundations mm-hmm. shaken and, and an issue that you know matters to me when i talk to my friends who went uh in a different direction when they had their shaken. The subject is important to me too. I was, I've never formally been an atheist. Um, although I lived as though I were an atheist for a number of years or at least an agnostic. Um, but the thing is I am, I'm, I'm that man, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. So I need, I need to understand as best I can, not simply the arguments for the truth of the Catholic faith, but the, for the truth of Christianity in general and for the truth of God's existence. And so apologetics at this level, theistic apologetics has always been important to me. And it's important to me as well because there are so many people in our culture that are in that boat these days. So, you know, in this series, which which I decided to title Wizard of Oz Apologetics, what I'm doing, Matt, and I, I'm throwing it into your lap too, is I'm sharing the basic approach that I most often take 
when doing apologetics with those who doubt or deny the existence of God. Um, you may have a different approach. You may have other things you have in your mind, like Aquinas' arguments or whatnot. I'm just kind of sharing my approach because I think it can be enlightening to some. Um, so let's begin here. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we began, no way to get around the fact that the number of those who would self-identify as atheist or agnostic has been increasing, especially among young people in our society at least. Um, we read where Christian apologist Philip Johnson wrote these words, the most influential intellectuals in America and around the world are mostly naturalists who assume that God exists only as an idea in the minds of religious believers, only as an idea. In our great universities, naturalism, the doctrine that nature is all there is, is the virtually unquestioned assumption that underlies not only the natural sciences, but intellectual work of all kinds. And I want to say, in, in my own experience, Matt, this assumption that he talks about here has become so thoroughly unquestioned that most, most atheists don't even view themselves as needing to argue for anything. They don't view themselves as needing to make a, a, to defend anything. They'll say, um, hey, I have nothing to prove. I mean, they'll say this openly. I have nothing to prove. prove. I, I simply lack a belief in God, which you have. You're the one making the positive assertion that God exists, so the burden of proof lies entirely upon you. And I want to say that while it's true that in debate, the one making the positive assertion bears the burden of proof. That's true. What is not true is that the atheist is making no positive assertion. For instance, how about the following positive assertion? Nature is all there is, okay? Is that not a positive assertion? Or, or even on a deeper level, what about this assertion? Everything can be accounted for and made sense of in purely natural terms. Those are positive assertions. And, but the thing that bothers me is this, because a, the atheist is often not challenged to explain how he or she can account for everything in terms of natural causes, in terms of a natural worldview, it's those of us who believe in God who are continually kept on the defensive. We're the ones that are in the witness stand and we're kept in the witness stand. It's our job to present our arguments, you know, again, Aquinas, whatever, it's our job to present our arguments, our evidences for God's existence, and all the atheist feels that he has to do is listen and respond, eh, not good enough. Try again, Matt. Give me another answer. No, Aquinas is five ways. No, they don't fly with me. Try again. You see what I'm saying? There's this assumption that their worldview is to be taken for granted, really, and we're the ones that are on the defensive. And at as I said, yes, anyone who makes a positive assertion has a burden of proof. But in the Wizard of Oz apologetics, what I'm saying is the table can be turned. It's not as though the atheist is not making any positive assertion about the nature of the world in which we live that he or she would need to defend then. Well, with this all, okay. you know, going back to how you said you used yeah. to live as though there were no, no God, even though you never formally were an atheist, um, I think that, you know, yeah. in this age of the nuns, you know, people don't think they're making... A positive assertion at all a lot of the time they don't think they're making any assertions whatsoever right they just are yeah they're just doing their thing just, right that you like you you would have just, just the, probably been doing your thing um not making assertions about anything yeah. at all yeah and i thought you said 
I thought you said the, the world of the nuns, and I started thinking about like Carmelites and stuff, and I was really confused. About if, like only, the first half of your, if only, Kim. If only. I was really know. confused the first half of your sentence. If only we had more yeah. well, Teresa of Avila's <laughs> just wandering around us, you know. Amen to that. Well, with all this in mind then, this is all introductory. The question that I focus on um, when I'm engaged in apologetics with someone who would self-profess as atheist or even agnostic is the question that philosopher of mind, atheist philosopher of mind, John Searle asks when he says this, there is exactly one overriding question in contemporary philosophy. One overriding question. How do we fit in? How can we square the self-conception of ourselves as mindful, meaning-creating, free, rational agents? How do we square this with a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute, physical particles? That, that's the question that I have in mind when I sit down for a cup of coffee, for a beer, conversation with someone who identifies as an atheist. This is what I have in my mind. I may not say this, but you say that nothing exists but material particles. Nothing exists but matter. So how do you account for so many of the most basic aspects of your experience as a human being that just do not appear to be material? For instance, love, value, meaning, morality, reason. I mean, none of these appear to be composed of material substances, and yet you say the universe is nothing but material substances. How do you account for that? That's a question that I have in my mind. So that, in other words, rather than presenting direct arguments, that's what I consider like Aquinas' five ways, direct proofs for God's existence. Um, what I have in my mind, and what I do is, I, I like to argue indirectly, like an indirect proof in geometry, by pulling back the curtain on the atheist, naturalist, materialist worldview, like the Wizard of Oz, pull back the curtain, expose the inescapable logical implications of that materialist worldview, and kindly, lovingly attempt to challenge my atheist friend to make sense of his experience as a human being in terms of what he is telling me is true of the universe in which we live. In essence, I want to challenge him to make sense of his experience as a person without God. Okay? My hope, of course, is that facing the tensions in which he lives then as someone created in the image of God and someone who knows the you know, morality value that all these things are real and yet says that nothing exists but matter, what I'm hoping is that facing the tension between these two things, uh, my friend will want to rethink his position. And I'm going to tell a story at the end of this episode of a, of a situation in which that happened um, in gold, okay? Okay, catch up quickly then. Last week, you and I looked at the problem of human worth and dignity. We looked at human worth and dignity and the question, can that be accounted for in a materialist worldview? In short, if God exists, and if you and I have been created in the image and likeness of God, immortal souls, spirits made in God's image, well, then it, it follows, and it just follows easily and naturally that we possess inherent, high, and equal value. On the other hand, if the universe is one massive material accident, then we don't. In that case, uh, well, we simply don't, and atheist philosophers admit this. Here's James Rachel's, a quote that we, I think we read this last session. As Darwin clearly recognized, we are not entitled, not on evolutionary grounds at any rate, 
to regard our own adaptive behavior as better or higher than a cockroach, who after all is adapted equally well to life in his own environmental niche. Okay? In a materialist world, consistency would dictate that you and I admit that we have no more intrinsic inherent value than a cockroach, which is a difficult thing to swallow entirely. <laughs> what, a cockroach? A cockroach yeah, is a difficult thing to swallow entirely. Well, it's, it's not that difficult. Well, yeah. you'll have to show me something. My, my son used to eat ants. He used to put live ants in his mouth and you chew on them. When he, You're going to love the yeah, way not, they tickle, Ken. Not, not, not cockroaches, though. Okay, this week we're shifting gears to another <laughs> subject. And next week as well. In fact, we may spend three weeks on this subject. We want to look at the problem of morality. We looked at human worth and dignity. This week, morality. The problem of right and wrong. And I have to begin, I'll keep it short, but I begin with a story that I told a couple of weeks ago. Here I am sitting in my psychology class in college. In walks my professor, an atheist professor of psychology, walks into the room and he simply announces, right and wrong do not exist. Morality is relative from person to person, is relative from culture to culture. He gave that example of um, certain native tribes way up north who, when they're old folks, you know, approach the age that Ken Hensley has already approached and maybe even passed and are no longer useful to society, as I am unuseful to, to society. They put them on a little block of ice and they just boot them out into the water. And that, that's the end of grandma and grandpa. And he was giving this example with an air of, of course, I mean, of course, who, who are we to judge? Because after all, morality is relative. And as I mentioned when I told the story before, um, I was sitting there looking around the room and I was thinking, you know, all these students are just taking notes as though, okay, the, you know, here's another truth that I'm just imbibing today. And, and, I, and I was thinking, if God exists, then obviously there, there could be a moral law. Right and wrong could be real things in the universe that God, ex you know, created. So this professor has just boldly walked into the room and essentially just announced to the class, God doesn't exist by saying there is no right and wrong. So I raised my hand and, and I said, I pulled out the Hitler card and I said, um, listen, according to what you, you said, professor, then I, then I suppose we can't say that what Hitler did was wrong in any kind of an absolute sense or the best we can say is that we, we don't agree or we don't like, we don't appreciate, you know, we condemn, you know, uh, vociferously, you know, is that what you're saying? And my professor kind of stumbled. He began to turn red a little bit. He began to walk backward into the, into the corner of the lecture hall. And then he stopped and he sort of looked thoughtful and he said, well, I guess there are some things that we agree on enough that they kind of really become wrong. Which is not entirely satisfying, I, I would assume, to him. It certainly wasn't to me. And I hope it wasn't to the others in the, in the, in the class, but it, but it points out that tension. Okay. Because, because, because he spoke with a lot of authority when he walked into the room as though this was just clear, you know, he was just, he just like nature is all there is. He was just stating what is obvious kind of. And then he immediately began to stumble all over the place. Um, I don't know about you, but, but I'm not sure that I've ever met a person who didn't believe in what CS Lewis referred to as a law of morality right and wrong, in some sense being real things. There are, of course, a great number who say that they believe morality 
is simply relative from person to person or society, culture to culture, but they give evidence continually that they don't. Even as I, when I didn't consciously think about God, I gave evidence all day long that I believed in a law of morality, even if I didn't have any foundation for it. And I'm sure the same for you. You've read um, Mere Christianity? Of course, once over or and twice, over. right? Uh, yeah, and uh, over this, and over. The argument that he makes about this morality that's kind of behind all the other morality. He makes a similar argument in The Abolition of Man, by the way, about how there's a standard. You, we, we may think that we create the standards, we create the values, but uh, there's a standard kind of behind the standards that we're all sort of appealing to when we make these value statements. Um, you know, and I think your professor yeah. was trying to do that without having anything to appeal to based on he'd taken away the thing that he could appeal to. And then yet he was still trying to appeal to it. It's natural for us to want to appeal to that. And notice when he did appeal, he basically appealed to agreement. He said, well, I guess there are some things we agree on. But even that, that kind of re- really become even making, wrong. even making yeah. uh, agreement, the, the standard um, is trying to grasp at a standard, right? A standard that actually just doesn't have any foundation in your worldview. Um, but we're going to get to that next week. We're going to talk about various standards that can be put forward to support morality. But anyway, uh, you know, I don't think I've m- ever met anybody who didn't believe in it. And it's with this observation that C.S. Lewis begins his classic work, Mere Christianity. I'll read it quickly, but I want to read what he says here because I think it's good. Um, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny. Sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things people say. They say things like this, how do you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing anything. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on. You promised. People say say things like this every day, educated people as well as uneducated, children as well as grownups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he is doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there is some special excuse. He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given that bit of the bit of orange. <laughs> you know, that was different when you gave me the bit of orange. This is a different situation. Or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it, about which they really agreed. And they and they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. You know, in other words, had some kind of agreement that right and wrong are more than simple matters of personal opinion. Now, maybe you've seen it, Matt, but I mean, I, I think that Lewis is hitting on a, a, an essential, simple truth. And I don't know whether you have, but I, I've watched a lot of courtroom dramas on TV in my day, Perry Mason and whatnot. 
I've never yet heard a defense attorney make the case, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, sure my client um, beat up that old lady and robbed her jewelry store, but then, hey, morality is relative from person to person, so why should he be on trial? I, I haven't heard that yet. Maybe you have. I have not. I have not. And even I would think, Ken, when you were wandering around the beaches of Southern California, living as if there were no God, you would have still said something like, you know, if someone did something wrong to you or cut in front of you, you'd have said, hey, man, yeah. that's wrong. If somebody would ask you uh, why, you may not have said, you know, because God says, you know, it's wrong to cheat your brother. <laughs> you know, you would have said, like, it's just not fair, man. It's just not fair. Right. There's a sense of yeah. fairness that's that's out there somewhere. Um, yeah, and I'm sure you've noticed with your son, kids have a sense of justice very early. Oh yeah, they know when something's not fair. They see it. They they sense it. So you know what I'm saying here is is simply this: we all know, and that includes me. It includes you. We all know that ultimately, ultimately, morality is not simply relative from person to person, a matter of personal taste. We know that. Now, someone might attempt to escape this complete subjectivism of saying right and wrong are just relative from person to person by, ar by arguing instead that moral standards are determined by entire cultures, entire societies, so that wrong and, uh, you know, right and wrong are societal conventions, you know, and therefore kind of attempt to escape. I mean, it's still relativism, but at least it's not like the total relativism of saying Hitler has his has his morality, I have mine. You know, Mother Teresa right. has hers. Hit, Hitler's Wayne wrong because we all agree that he's wrong. Uh, you know, that's the standard. The standard is yeah. that enough of us don't like what he's doing yeah. that we should consider it wrong. The standard is the fact but that even we outnumber you, him. Yeah, yeah. But but even if you try to say no, no, it's it's decided by society, societies, and so therefore it's societal conventions. We don't believe that either. So we don't really believe that it's personal relativity and we don't even believe societal relativity. And here's why. If we really believed that morality is determined by cultures and it's relative from culture to culture, if we really believe that, then we wouldn't go around ever talking about how one culture or society was morally superior to another. Um, it, it would be like my psychology professor's stance toward those Native Americans who murder their, their grandparents. Instead, we, we would say something like, well, I may not approve of it when Boko Haram or ISIS kidnaps hundreds of young school-age girls um, and gives them to their, their men as, as sex slaves and, and wives. I may not approve of it, but hey, like my professor said about the, uh, about the Eskimo tribes, who, are, who am I to judge? But we say things like that. And so whenever someone says, uh, my point is, we may say that morality is relative from culture to culture, but whenever one of us says something like Christian morality is better than Boko Haram or ISIS morality, or that the morality that is taught in the Jewish synagogue down the road is better than um, the morality taught by the Nazi party of America, whenever we, we use a comparison like that, we're appealing to a standard that we conceive as existing above these two cultures and by which we can measure them or by which we can judge them. Um, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said that we're, we're appealing to the existence of a kind of absolute moral measuring stick of some sort. That law of morality that C.S. Lewis talked about, 
So, so in other words, I can say that morality is relative, and I'm sure I have thought that at times in my life, and that I can back off from that total subjectivism and say, no, 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 it's, it's not just relative from person to person, it's, it's whole societies, but, but we definitely need to accept what societies do. You know, Some societies kill their female infants, we need to accept that. Um, in India, in the past, there was that thing called sati, where um, when the husband dies, the wife would be burned alive on his funeral pyre at the same time. But we cannot judge. After all, that's their society. That's their culture. And the point I'm making is, whether we say the one or the other, we give evidence all the time that we don't really believe it because we still make comparisons. We we don't. None of us just stands here and says, no, no society is better than any other. The society of the Nazis, the society of uh, Stalin's Russia or Mao Zedong's China is just as good as the society of um of uh, you know the the sisters of charity or missionaries of charity. No one says that. In other words, all this to say that here we see an, another point of tension that someone who doesn't believe in God must live with, a point of tension. Because belief in a law of morality is this bottom line, it follows quite naturally within a theistic worldview. If God exists and if God made you and I in his image and God is a personal moral being, then it just follows naturally that moral law could and would exist in the universe that God created. Moral law makes, just moral law makes sense in a the, within a theistic worldview. The metaphysical foundations exist for the existence of moral law, for moral law to exist and be real, for right and wrong to be real things. And because everyone is made in the image and likeness of God, you and I, everyone knows to our bones that right and wrong are somehow real. I think you talked about the professor last week, you know, the, the, the ethics professor. I mean, you could have a full-on atheistic ethics professor who teaches that morality is relative. Um, he may mock the ignorance and mock the arrogance of anyone who believes that right and wrong actually exist and are real or that moral absolutes exist. He could mock it. But, you know, try cheating on his uh, test on moral relativism. Try, um, try going into his office with a shotgun and, uh, and uh, asking him kindly to change your D to an A. <laughs> you know, try stealing the stereo from his car. Try even something as insignificant you mentioned this at the beginning. Try something even as insignificant as cutting in front of him in line at the grocery store and watch how this moral relativist, you know, presto, will become a moral absolutist. It's just in his bones. It's in our bones. I think again about the professor that I mentioned earlier. He was so confident in his moral relativism that he could just walk right, in, right into the room I mean, think about that. A hundred people or so in a room, you just walk right in and you just state right and wrong do not exist. He, he felt that comfortable in his moral relativism. And I'm sure he imagined himself to be a stalwart moral relativist. But when confronted with the unpleasant implications of this, just my simple question about Hitler, he, he, he collapsed. He, he wasn't able to maintain the fiction that morality is nothing more than convention even though that's what he said. Uh, he wasn't able to maintain the fiction that 
It's just nothing more than words we use to describe what we like from person to person or culture to culture. He couldn't escape the fact that he knew in his heart of hearts that right and wrong were real. And yet based on his worldview, that nothing exists but material substances, he had no basis for believing it. Yeah, and I've talked to you, um, again, I don't come from this uh, particular worldview. Um, best I could say is I, I had doubts, and, and you know, conversations like this kind of reined me back in from from those doubts. Mere Christianity was very helpful for me when I was, you know, having mm-hmm. a serious doubting phase, but, uh, you know, I think it was Jeff Miller, uh, the Kurt Jester, who was talking about his own journey on this particular question that, you know, at first his, you know, moral sense was don't get caught at what you're doing, right? That's the basis for his morality. <laughs> then he yeah. realized that's not good enough uh, because he had fallen in love and he had married and he had had children. And he realized don't do things to hurt the people you love is a pretty good moral standard. Um, mm-hmm. And it began to develop from there. And there are a lot of atheists and agnostics who have pretty strongly developed standards of morality and it comes from sort of lived experience of like, how do I want my life to go? It will go poorly if I do not observe these particular standards. Um, but then the standard is you, yeah. right? The standard is you. That's why I, I keep repeating the word tension. Uh, it, it's simply a tension. You know, I would say that because, I mean, I mean anyone, but you said there, there are plenty of atheists, and, and that's absolutely true. There are plenty of people who would deny the existence of God and yet live highly moral lives yeah. and believe in morality and want to practice morality and condemn what they view as injustice or immorality, condemn it. So that's why I keep using the word tension, because in terms of what they say is true of the universe in which we live, they don't really have a foundation for it. They don't have a foundation for there being certainly nothing like a law of morality or 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 you know, right and wrong being real things. I remember one of my teachers used to say, okay, if right and wrong are material things, you know, how much does a wrong weigh? Um, how long is right? I mean, it, are right and wrong, I mean, can you hide them in the sock drawer and can you go find them? And if that sounds ludicrous to you, well, that's because they are not material things. They're obviously not material things. And yet if they're not material things and they don't have a foundation in a purely materialist worldview, and yet we believe them, we know them, and we live according. That's why it's the tension kind of thing, okay? And um, <clears throat> we're going to come back, like I said, we're going to come back next week, in fact, and maybe the week after, to look at some of the ways, one by one by one, that someone who denies the existence of God might attempt to found a system of morality, to be able to say, no, I have rational grounds for more, for believing in right and wrong, and here it is. What I, what I wanted to emphasize today, Matt, is really just two things and, and make it clear. First is simply that atheism, um, an atheist worldview, okay, an atheist universe has no foundation for moral absolutes. And, and therefore, someone who denies the existence of God really cannot account for moral absolutes. If the universe is nothing more than one massive material accident, then there is no moral law that exists above us. And atheists will admit this. Again, I, I, I read from atheist philosopher Michael Roos, who puts this quite beautifully and consistently. This is what he says. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, something objective and real. Ethics is illusory. It's an illusion. 
I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring to some moral law existing above and beyond them to a moral law. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation, Michael Roos says. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process. It has no existence or being beyond this, and any deeper meaning is illusory. To which I want to respond, because I'm a lawbreaker by nature, I want to respond, Matt, okay, if morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, if morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, and if I, in the end, am nothing more than an ephemeral, pro- an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, if I'm only here for a few decades, it surely feels now like it's only been a few, and then I just, you know, before I just get sucked down in the quicksand, then I would ask the question, why should I give a damn? about your concept of morality. Or, you know, the other option is, why not kidnap a school full of, you know, young girls and turn them into your harem because that's a way to survive and reproduce. You know, uh, like, <laughs> that's uh, <clears throat> a pretty sobering question to ask oneself. Um, surely there is something more. I mean, again, like I say, this goes back to you wandering mm-hmm. the beaches of California. You knew... Even when you didn't know that you had a purpose in this life, and even when you didn't know that God, you know, had implanted his image on Ken Hensley and wanted him for great things and that Mm -hmm. grace would be operating on his soul, you still knew, man, I got to do something with my life, (laughs) right? Thankfully, that idea never did completely leave me. Thank God. Thank God. So that's the first point, that... And, and yes, this is personal, Matt, because I, I, even now I've known the Lord for 40 years, more than 40 years, but even now to remind myself of the fact that if this universe really was just a giant material accident controlled entirely by the laws of physics and chemistry and, and nothing but particles interacting with one another according to strict physical laws and bouncing around, if that were true, then right and wrong could be nothing more than words we use to describe what we don't like. Words you and I use, and chimps don't use them, they don't care. You know, bugs, cockroaches don't care about right and wrong. It's just words we use, that's what it boils down to. And so it becomes very, very hard to found a system of morality and enforce it. Well, I mean, you can enforce it by power, but enforce it rationally that others would agree with you. You know, the Marquis de Sade once said, He said, um, you know who he was, the guy that tortured women. He said, nature has made man stronger than woman. Therefore, I can do with them whatever I want. That was his moral system. Okay, the second thing I want to emphasize here today is this. Whatever you and I may say, whatever someone who denies the existence of God might say, none of us can live as though right and wrong really was relative from person to person and society to society. And except in rare cases, they don't. Instead, what everyone does is they live in tension between who they are as the image and likeness of God, knowing that right and wrong are real, and in most cases, living as though right and wrong were real, and, and the tension between that and what they are saying is true of the universe in which we live, that the survival of the fittest is the law of nature, 
that um, nature is red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson said, um, that morals um, are an illusion, as Michael Ruse said, um, when he said that right and wrong, uh, believing that it refers to a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something is just an illusion. Um, it's the ten what happens is we live in that tension. And when I came to firmly believe in God, and, and that faith has deepened through the years, then I, I've come to understand there is a foundation for morality. Right and wrong are real. You know, it really is wrong to beat the old woman and rob the jewelry store. It, it, it really is wrong. It's not just something that, that uh, you know, law-abiding people protest, you know. Let me ask you a question here at the end. Have you ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's film, The Rope? Is that, the, Rope? Is that Jimmy Stewart? Yes. Okay, uh, I have not seen it, but I need to. Yeah, you need to see it. It's really a powerful film. And uh, here's the basic, basic story. It's about two students... Um, inspired by their prep school headmaster, who's Jimmy Stewart, okay? Their headmaster is an atheist, and he's been teaching them Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's been teaching them th the idea of power and superiority in nature, and he, he's been teaching them that those who are superior can do what they like with those that they deem inferior because we live in a godless universe in which moral absolutes don't exist, okay? Now, these two students, they want to... Um, impress their teacher. So what they do in this film is they pick out someone at school that they deem to be inferior to them. They kill this young man, they murder him, and they put his body in a chest, a, a box, and then they invite their, their headmaster over for a cocktail party, and they invite some friends, in, including the young man that they have murdered and his fiance, and I believe his, par his parents. They invite them over for a cocktail party and they use the chest in which this boy's body lies as the um, buffet table. And they have, they have food and drink on top. And they're having this pleasant evening where they're talking and all this. And they're, and, and they're making little hints along the way about something that they have done. But it's all, it's all sort of innuendo and it's this hint-like. As the party ends and everyone begins to go home, uh, the... the um, the headmaster comes back into the room. I can't remember now whether they invite him back in. I just haven't seen it in a long time. But the headmaster comes back into the room, and they reveal to him what they've done. They show him the body, and when he is appalled, of course, you know his sense of injustice just rises up, and he's completely appalled. Then they respond to him, and they say, basically, but this is what you taught us. You know, you taught us that in a godless universe, moral absolutes don't exist. And those who are superior can do what they like with those who are inferior. We've done this to impress you. And at the end, you know, he calls the, um, he calls the, the cops. And you hear the sirens coming at the end. And you see this headmaster who has been teaching his students these things. But when they actually put the, them into practice, he basically says to them something along the lines of, but these were just ideas. It's a good film. You should see yeah. it. But it really sounds like I need to. Sounds like I need to. It, yeah, very and get, powerfully. And this is what it comes back to a lot, uh, you know, of the time for any of these things that we're talking about in theology between two different theological groups. You know, uh, not not just between people who are theists and atheists, mm -hmm. but people who are, uh, you know, for instance, in my, you know, Bible college growing up, Wesleyans and Calvinists or or Catholics and Reformed, uh, you know, when it comes to the realm of just ideas, it's one thing to kind of like toss it around in a classroom and, uh, 
that's all good and well, but what are the implications? Um, yeah, how you live yes. your life? Like, what does it matter for like what you do? Um, how you treat people? Uh, whether you believe in a moral code? I mean, it's all fine and well to talk about like the doctrine of election, but what does that mean for you know the people in your neighborhood? Right? It's all fine and well to talk about like we're all just chemicals going through you know yes yes biological functions yes what does that mean for how we live in a society you know i mean it's it's a it's an important thing to to understand how the rubber hits the road that's why we're that's why the word tension again and um, let me conclude with this just a quick story of how this applied in my own life Um, i was waiting tables at a restaurant after graduating from seminary and i made friends with a young man there great guy he and i became good friends he was a waiter i was a waiter and um, he was an atheist. And he said that he, it was basically scientism is what he was into. And science has shown that there is no God, that kind of thing. And he, he was an atheist. And so I began to talk to him about these issues. And morality was one that I focused on because he was a very moral person. He had a high sense of what was right and wrong. And he lived it. And at the same time, he said he was an atheist. So what I started doing, it was this really small kind of thing, but what I started doing was he'd be standing in line at the bar to fill an order for wine or drinks for one of his tables. And I just walked up and just cut in front of him. And when when he would complain, you know, we were friends, so I could do it in a a friendly way. When he would complain, I said, hey, Tony, I said, I'm bigger than you are. I said, you know, you're smaller, uh, survival of the fittest. You know, there's no such thing as moral law in in an atheist universe. What's your problem? And I just cut in front of him and I would do stuff like that. And this idea, I mean, this is a case, I I point this out in this context because this is a case where that exact issue, the fact that his high sense of morality could not be founded, he couldn't find a foundation for it in his belief, um, in his atheist belief. You know, I think of Dostoevsky there saying, if God, isn't that in the brothers Karamazov, that if God does not exist, everything is permissible. This, this troubled him and this tension built within him until the night came where we were sitting in my kitchen and um, he came to profess his belief in God and he was eventually baptized into the church. Yeah, so, I mean, there's that one example of uh, <laughs> of, of a conversation <laughs> bearing fruit. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to where this conversation is going in the next week because, you know, honestly, like, like your friend Tony, I have some atheist agnostic friends who have a much higher developed moral sense than some of my Christian friends, some of my Catholic friends, you know, and, uh, and they have good reasons for, I mean, for instance, we've, you know, maybe talked even here. I, I know I've talked before and talked to people who are atheists who are adamantly pro-life. Uh, if this life is hmm. all there is, then depriving someone of it from the womb is about one of the worst things that you can do, Right. This is their one person's that's that's that person's one shot at living and you took it, uh, you know. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be unpacked in terms of morality in the next uh, in the next episode. But uh, yeah, we'll keep talking. Enough said for today. But you're exactly right. And I think that the point you make is one that's worth reiterating that I am not saying by this that that those who don't believe in God are immoral. You know, often it goes person by person. They can be immoral, but uh, you know, Joseph Stalin, for instance, or Mao Zedong or Paul Pot or, or any number of others. But I, I'm not saying that. In fact, an atheist can have a highly a high sense of morality. The problem is there's a tension between that and the view that he has of the nature of the universe. That's what I'm pointing out. There's a tension there. Um, the one doesn't follow naturally from the other. 
and he's going to have a hard time, you know, this pro-life one that you just talked about, you know, someone who's an atheist and yet pro-life. Um, yeah, he has a reason. He's come up with a reason for why you shouldn't kill the unborn child, but he'd have a hard time explaining why someone else couldn't have another opinion in a universe in which nothing matters ultimately. Yeah, it's a interesting conversation and one we'll hopefully get into okay. a little bit more next week. In the meantime, Ken, I encourage our listeners to come visit you and me in the online community, community.chnetwork.org. Or if you want to just go poke around the Coming Home Network site and find uh, stories, we have a lot of stories from people who have come from atheist worldviews and uh, mm -hmm. sort of walk through this process in their own experience and, and shared sort of their development on these questions of theism, uh, maybe uh, even Christianity, and then to belief in the, the Catholic Church. So, yeah, check out chnetwork.org. You can search by worldview background and, and check out some of the atheist stories to hear what people have uh, have said in that regard. In the meantime, Ken, have a great week. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>